Welcome to Tapping Into Spirit, where we discuss and explore issues related to spirituality in a manner that questions everything. We start from a premise that everything comes from somewhere and work to understand the unexplainable. We always endeavor to have a great time discussing a serious topic with the hopes of offering inspiring thoughts and ideas that allow for growth, evolution, and transformation. We always begin by inviting Spirit to join us in this conversation and guide our words and intentions so that we express things in a manner that is true and inspirational. And we are always thankful and extremely grateful for the opportunity to serve. Welcome to Tapping Into Spirit. Thank you for joining us for another episode as we get ready to talk about life. Yeah, what's going on in the world? I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Smith, joined today by co-host Glenda Jones here. And we're doing an interview with a former guest who's, who we said we had to bring back and we're bringing them back for round two. Um, Reverend Pastor Carl W. Kenny II. How Thank you, you sir. <laughs> I don't know how, how I feel about being called pastor, but I, I'll take it. You don't go by pastor. <laughs> I think you said that last time, did you? Yeah, yeah. It's. Uh, how do you feel about titles? What, what, what's your? Uh, I, I don't. I don't like. I don't like. I don't like titles because they don't. They don't define the person. Mm -hmm. they, they define your resume. Define the person. I think people get trapped in titles. You know, um, I use the term spiritual leader. Um, I, I, I give it to others who use the other titles, but I don't. I don't like them because um, people measure you by especially especially when it comes to faith communities. People have so many misconceptions. I mean, they have so many conceptions of what it means to, to have those titles constructed in very negative ways. Um, so when I engage in conversations with people, the first thing people ask you in America, you know, it's an American thing, right? People mm. want to, what do you do for a living? You know, and I've often said, well, I'm a bum that says on the street, you know, that really trips people up and you say something like that. But we, in America, we define people by what they do for a living. Mm -hmm. uh, but that doesn't tell you anything about a person. You know, when you travel abroad, they don't ask you that question. You know, they get to know you. Uh, so I don't like the titles because when people see the titles before you show up. You know, you show up in those rooms, they already know your title, be it reverend, be it doctor. Um, and when it comes to like a faith community, you mean those terms doctor, um, bishop, or whatever it may be, they already have in their head what that looks like uh, based on what they see in, in pop culture. You know, there's so many images of what that looks like. There's so many people who do it wrong and they already do. So that's why I don't like the titles because I, I don't want people to think that that's me. Mm, okay. Yeah, I've seen people with like four or five titles. <laughs> Dr. Bishop. Yeah. Reverend yeah. Dr. Bishop. <laughs> yeah. Deacon. Yeah, they, they collect them. They, we have bishops who I don't understand what that means anymore. Right. Uh, what do you do to become a bishop? 
um, theologically speaking, the dish of, uh, is, is understood that there's a apostolic secession, you know, where um, you're being a bishop, the, the people that lay hands on you can be traced all the way back to Jesus. Mm-hmm. These bishops ain't got no kind of connection. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? In fact, I wonder if they even know who Jesus is. But you know, and so it's, it's just interesting to me when, you know, the people who claim uh, some kind of, uh, you know, uh, love and admiration of biblical texts who don't even know what what their titles represent mm-hmm. as a real slap to the integrity of how that's been understood historically. Now you can talk to me about um, countering the culture of history. You know what it means to um, not not want to be attached to the historical interpretation, which is what I do, right? But for these folk, you know they they're so whitewashed by white evangelical Christian thought process, yet their very practice is, 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 is contrary to that. Mm-hmm. So always troubling to me. If you're going to be a white evangelical Christian, be one, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. you're not, don't, you know, be something different, but whatever you're going to do, be consistent. Yeah. Historically, our, we received our education very differently than what we do now. Like now we go to school in the in these in universities for them to validate who we are and what we know. And I'm not anti-school. Right. However, historically, like at one point there were midwives who delivered babies and they did a great job and infant mortality mm-hmm. was even higher. I mean it was even lower. I mean we were able to deliver babies and them to be healthy. Well, then came um, gynecology. Right. And, you know, they're no longer, so it's like you trivialize that because they didn't get a medical degree, but some of the medical degree where, you know, they're killing mothers and children Hmm. and it's not healthy, but you know, they are looked up to, so. Yeah, you know, when I think, when I think of it, the black folk in educational systems, in many ways, my generation was presented as a human sacrifice. <laughs> we were presented as a human sacrifice. Mm-hmm. We were, uh, because of Dr. King's vision, you know, uh, the idea that you can go to the white schools and you're going to pave the way. You know, we're going to be equals, you know, which is not, it's proven not to be the case, you know our quest to be like white people. We bring the sacrifice to go to those schools uh, to prove that we could, we could, we can own, you know, our, 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 own our space, uh, the best of the white minds. And in doing that, what happens is we diluted the integrity of what it meant to be surrounded by black minds. Yeah. But I call it like a human sacrifice. Yeah. That wasn't real. You know, um, you know, we know now, um, you know, 50 years later, that integration really destroyed our communities. You know? Absolutely. You know, yeah. it's yeah. very it's clear. People are now talking about resurrecting HBCUs, go back to the HBCU when we're trying to run away from them 50 years ago. Yeah. We, say, we don't want no black stuff no more. We want white folk stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for me, I, I, I really look at my life as, as being like a human sacrifice for an idea um, promoting, um, you know, whiteness, you know, uh, be like white people. And 
and so you're right, Glenda, in many ways, the, um, the type of professions that were uh, elevated black lives, you know, create, created like very strong black communities were taken away from us because we wanted to be something other. Yeah. And once we got there, they took that away too. Mm. And the process of redefining the terms of excellence now we do the hard work, but they still ain't going to let you in. Mm-hmm. And, and they name it something different. You know, it becomes, uh, you, you talk too damn much, you know, or it becomes, <laughs> you know, it comes like you, 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 uh, you're either too black or you ain't white enough. Right. So it becomes something different where we're still manipulated and controlled by white supremacy. Um, and it all goes back to the, that beginning of what happened in education. That's the way I look at it. And for me, um, when it comes back to the whole title question, um, there, there, there is something about the bougie Negro mm. that is problematic for me. You know? And when people hear the, the places where I was educated and the degrees I have and all the titles I could claim, um, and I have a right to do it, but when you do all of that, then there are folks that are going to look at you cross-eyed because they, they make, you know, you, they assume that you're one of the black bougie Negroes that don't care about normal black people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think that, you know, that's interesting. And so I think we should spend some time talking about ego and Please. the role ego plays in uh, spiritual systems university uh, and, and how it is helpful and how it's hurtful. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I also want to, you know, just reflect on this, this concept of being a sacrifice. And I, I like <laughs> to look at old pictures um, yeah. and just observe the people in the pictures and think about what must they've been thinking and what were they, what was their life like? And yeah. I see the pictures of those that were on the front lines of that integration mm-hmm. and just how lonely you see these people yelling and spitting and all the evil. I, I was looking at one the other night and the young woman was sitting in the classroom and the kids behind her were mm-hmm. jeering and mm-hmm. they had to have been saying just some nasty mm-hmm. things to her. And she was just sitting there taking it. And I was thinking how lonely it must have been for her to go through that process. Um, and what are the lasting imp- what lasting impact that must have had on her psyche, even to this day? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so that was indeed a sacrifice. She mm-hmm. didn't get to have a quote unquote normal um, childhood development. Mm-hmm. Um, she took one for the team. So for the team, mm-hmm. as a kid, um, and, and as, right, right. And, and, and so there are many people that did that, and I don't know that we have really appreciated um, what, that, what that was as right. a, a community, as a culture. Um, we just um, kind of like, oh, well, that's just part of history. Um, yeah, and, and I don't think we've, I don't think we've, we've uh, invested enough energy into examining the assumptions of that position, mm-hmm. um, the assumptions of what it meant to sacrifice a child, to go to a crowd of jeering white folk, mm-hmm. right? Uh, where, you know, um, you know, you see the videos and the pictures where you have National Guard and uh, other forms of military assistance to, to defend, to protect your body. Mm-hmm. Right? 
you know, to, to, to prevent them from killing you, you know? And what type of assumption goes into adults saying that's a credible decision to make? Mm-hmm. You know, did they even think about what it means to have a child have to like keep her head up and like what walk with some dignity and pride and do it like you are a white person. Mm-hmm. I mean, there is a sense in which our movement was like um, position our bodies in ways that uh, that prove we just like y'all. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and, and excuse me for saying it, but we won't whip your ass. You know, <laughs> you know we'll take it. We're good Negroes. And there's something about that, you know, the, the assumptions of that type of, um, some, uh, that theory, the theory that goes into sacrificing children to get some laws passed. Mm. You know, the laws were that important that our children to be sacrificed. Mm-hmm. And in this, the, the cruel reality for me and my generation, you know, I'm just turned 61, is that I'm one of the sacrifices. You know, you know, truly, I'm one of the sacrifices. I'm that first wave of black kids who went into kindergarten um, who were not welcome in those, in, those, in those systems, who is being taught by white teachers, uh, living in a community that's predominantly white, uh, and uh, not really knowing how they feel about me. You know, the assumption would be that they're there to honor uh, my educational pursuit. But I have no way of knowing that. And my experience uh, with education has proved that they really weren't really concerned about me. They put me in the special education classes. I mean, there's a long story of what I had to go through to just get to a place where um, you know I can be seen for my intelligence, but you know how many black people were the human sacrifice? Not only not only human sacrifices in public education, but we are human sacrifices on these damn jobs. Right. Yes, you know what I mean. Um, and in many ways, we continue to exist as human sacrifices, where they allow a few Negroes in to symbolize inclusion and diversity, but there's a cost that comes with that. You know, there can be a cost that comes with that, and that cost is uh, you have to maintain a certain way of being to be able to stay in that place. So I think that we continue to be human sacrifices. And what that means to your soul, you know, you know, of course, Fonz Fanon, you know, Black Skin, White Mask, um, you know, that was closed, uh, his book, um, uh, The Rage of the Privileged Class. There, there's this history of, 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 of scholarship around the black psyche uh, in having to operate mm-hmm. in two places simultaneous. Mm-hmm. You know, having to, 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 to have the black, the integrity of your blackness, uh, which, which, which in many ways is going to be couched in radical ideology. You know, I'm down for the cause, my brother, my sister while also being able to pretend that you care. I mean, you know, the, my, one of my favorite uh, movies of all time is The Spook Who Sat at the Door. 
Mm-hmm. I love it not only for the movie, but I, I love it for what Greeley had to do to just get the work done. You know, how do you have to manipulate the system to be able to get funding for the movie? And as a filmmaker, um, you know, the challenges around uh, trying to get things done. You know, you're the black business who's dependent upon white approval to get money. Mm. You know, what you have to do to just be able to do it. Mm -hmm. Stripping of your soul. um, That um, is is very critical. I was on a, um, I'm shifting a little bit. But I was on a Zoom earlier with the United Church of Chapel Hill, and we were talking about a joy. And uh, I was telling them that one of the things that's happening now with COVID is the one powerful benefit of Black worship was and how it presents itself as a place where people can rekindle joy after being beat down all week long. And what black church exists for at its best, and there's a whole long conversation we have about the worst, but at its very best, the black church exists exists to protect black people. Mm-hmm. Text of identity. Uh, it it texts, uh, it, 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 you know, it redefines what it means to be a, a spiritually created person in the image of God. It reshapes the rhetoric around what it means um, to have a faith. It protects our our rituals. It protects our history. And so at the very best, the early black church was about protecting what they brought with them to this continent. And of course, a lot of it was stripped over time as memories begin to fade. But at its very, very best, the black church has existed as a protection of black identity and spirituality. And it also exists to protect black people from white folk. That's what black church is. And when you look at the civil rights movement, it's like, um, if you look at like the, 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 the people that, that, that were, you know, uh, I just wrote a piece about the deaths of uh, C.T. Vivian, um, you know, uh, John Lewis and Emma, Emma Sanders. Mm-hmm. It's really a, the death of an era. Mm-hmm. You know, they all work together as freedom riders, and they, they, you know, they accepted that whole idea that I'm gonna be the human sacrifice. I'm gonna die for this stuff. And it's like they popped on the pages of some kind of like holy writ, this pop into human history to say that we're gonna march like Jesus. You know what I mean? Uh, where they really bought into that idea. And it's like now, it's like the death of that kind of movement. We have a new generation and generational interpretation of what that means. But so much of, and and I'm I'm going all over the place with this, but so much of what we have historically as a people has been uh, the importance of the black body as a sacrifice. And the the damage that does to our psyche. I mean, you're the you're the you the you know you're the psychiatrist, you're the psychologist here. You know the damage is done to the black psyche that I would argue is a result of how racism just digs into our souls, and there's no place to go to heal. I kind of think when I heard you say that, thinking about our upcoming school year, and I know that a lot of children will be taught from home. But when the school is open, those people who cannot afford Mm -hmm. to stay at home and teach their children will send their children to this experiment. 
that they're mm -hmm. doing. Right. Because they really don't know how it's going to turn right. out. And, and how is that going to affect our children? Like, so I hear you say that, and I think we're repeating that cycle. Yeah, we're sacrificed. Uh, you, give, me, give me something even deeper than that. I mean, and, and I'm, I want to deal with that issue, but in Missouri, Governor Parson uh, had a call uh, to black pastors um, when the conversations was uh, how are we going to reopen our communities, right? And he called the black pastors, black pastors only, and said, uh, I need you to take leadership in opening up the churches, right? And um, my, my friend um, uh, Tracy Blackman, who did a lot of work with Ferguson, she screamed back, uh, we're not going to be your human sacrifice. Mm -hmm. right. We're not going to be the one like to, to go out there and to prove to the good old white folk it's okay to go back to church. Mm -hmm. Y'all good old Negroes like to worship together and y'all go back and sing y'all songs and go die. <laughs> and um, then, and, and, and you know, test, test this thing for us, please. Mm -hmm. Y'all Negroes go test it now. That's what y'all do now. Go on the front line. Do it for Jesus. <laughs> Oh, and, and, and so it's, it's in many ways, that's kind of what we got right here. And even when it comes to this whole issue of public education, public instruction, like, let's look at who, who, who attends our public schools in Durham. Overwhelmingly black and brown. Yes. Overwhelmingly, so it's 70% black and brown. Okay. Look at who's being infected by COVID. Black and brown. So what's the sacrifice for white people when you start talking about going back to school when their little kids are being homeschooled, alternative schools? You think they're going back to school? Mm -hmm. So even in this, if, if we look at the, how this uh, pandemic is being managed, there is a sense in which, um, again, black bodies are being put on the front line as a human sacrifice, um, again. Mm -hmm. it's, our, it's part of that history of, of being the sacrifice to prove things going to be all right. And the thing that really gets to me is how we are the human sacrifice. We even kill each other. That's a mm -hmm. conversation. Like, you know, we're so used to being human sacrifices that we just kill each other like ain't nothing to it. Mm -hmm. You know, and, uh, but yeah, there's something that happens to the black psyche. Um, and for me, my work is in addressing the deeply spiritual and emotional and psychological consequences of having to endure life as an ongoing human sacrifice. And, 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 and that, that how you, you know, your body is a sacrifice, your parents' bodies were a sacrifice, your grandparents' Bibles was, bodies were sacrifices. It just goes all over and over and again. You know, um, the, the book I'm, one of the books, I'm actually writing three books at the same time, it's crazy. But one of the books that I'm writing now is uh, called My Mother's Freedom. And uh, this follows uh, My Daddy's Promise, which is about caregiving. But it just comes to me uh, in, in thinking through my mother's story there's so much of what she has endured throughout her life is her body being sacrificed, her life being sacrificed. And in, in a, as a consequence of that, in the, the grappling to find freedom. How do you find freedom when your body is nothing but a sacrifice? 
and you don't get anything, you don't get anything out of the sacrifice. You're sacrificing for your kids, you're sacrificing for your marriage, you're sacrifice, sacrificing working two, three jobs to make a living. You know, you sacrifice you sacrifice every, you sacrifice all of it. And, and and consistently being told that guess what? Give me some more. Right. It's not enough that you gave me all of that. Give me some more, damn it. Because you ain't worth a thing. You're just a black woman. And the pain of living that kind of life and how these women, they, they're going to the church. They flood into the church. And even in going to the churches, there really is no real, no, no real comfort in that if you really consider that the church is scripting them the same way. They, they, you know, their, their bodies are being sacrificed in the church. They bring in a little bit of money. They, they bring in a little bit, all of their service to the church, and they can't even, they can't even function in leadership roles. They're being told that their their bodies are the a problem, you know. You, you know, you you you're enticing the pastor. Cover yourself up. It's a continuing sacrifice of self, without any kind of compensation, uh, either in monetary or in spiritual ways. And and this this is this it's just that's that's the story of black life. And for women, theology it's almost as if changing. we're supposed to do that. It's like we are expected to sacrifice for our children, for our marriage, for, like, it is an expectation. And what we've seen, like we learn that from our mothers, our grandmothers, we, we've done that for, for centuries. Mm -hmm. And it, yeah. it, it can be uncomfortable to stand up and say, I'm no longer going to sacrifice myself Right. For your happiness, for your yeah, well-being. I'm going Right. And you're called your right. you know, you're feminist, you're you're right. selfish, you're so many things. Like shut up, Glenda, be quiet and just, you know, yeah. sacrifice. Just sacrifice it. And it's important to me now now for, for me as a theologian, um, it's important that I, I hear theology coming from the the people, you know. That uh, the the shaping of theology for me comes from the people who who speak it. So when it comes to this womanist perspective, you know, I've got to hear from black women what it means for them to hear God. And in saying that, it's important to me that the white women shut the hell up. Mm. So the 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 feminist, the traditional feminist interpretation, theological interpretation, in many ways, harms black women in the same way the patriarchy does. And it's important to say that, that the black women have manipulated power over black women in the same way white men have manipulated power over black women. And so freedom means that in, in some sense, you gotta be free from a white woman, liberal perspective of what it means for you to be created in the image of God. Mm. It goes both ways. Now, for, 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 that's something that I feel deep in my bones. But saying that has to come from, uh, from, from women. Women have to say that in a way that I cannot say it. I can affirm it. I, I mean, I can affirm it. I can advocate for it. I can call for men to see it. But it's the women have to drive what their freedom looks like. In the same way that old folk need to listen to the youth talk about what it means for them to be free in the same way 
that young people need to listen to their elders talk about their story. It's all of us engaged together in conversations of what it means to be spiritually made and moving toward a new understanding of what life looks like. It's the distance from each other that makes it hard to find spirituality. And for me, spirituality is about one thing only, freedom. That's, it's a quest for authentic freedom. Freedom in talking about what it means to me, for me to be loved by God and created by God. The beauty of my black skin is the freedom to say, God loves this blackness. You know? And whatever else that comes with that, God loves that too. God loves being woman, God loves you gay, God, whatever that may be, God loves that. The freedom to say, I am loved by God. That's spirituality at its very essence. That's it. Everything else is just icing. Mm. So what do you think is stopping that from coming forth as something that is utilized by people? I think that I think the religions religion has been manipulated as a weapon to control. Okay, um, I, I stay away from religions that um, create hierarchies, uh, religions that. Um, want to measure certain people as more spiritually made than others. So which ones are those that don't do that? Well, that's the problem. They all do. <laughs> okay. So you hearing me, my brother? Yeah. We all do it. I mean, that goes back to what we were saying in the beginning about ego and the role that ego plays in um, limiting the effectiveness of the words of so many, so many religions and spiritual traditions. In, in my estimation, we look at what the texts say, what the words say. There's some very good, good, um, good things that come out of these different traditions. And if you right. line them up next to each other, they they say similar things: love, you know, right. love, uh, respect. Uh, right. People with kindness, charity, don't, don't, you know, they say similar things, mm -hmm. but then the interpretation of man and the ego in that interpretation comes in away. and creates hierarchy and specialness and, right. and multiple titles. And so I'm closer to God than you are and, right. and all of this. Right. And so, as soon as we took the feminine principles from the creator, when, mm -hmm. when God became a he, mm -hmm. we really were messed up. I mean, we're right. so out of line. I was, I was, I was doing, uh, I'm doing some, some scholarship earlier today, do some, some processing. Uh, I'm doing this work um, about the human, the women, the, the female body, <laughs> you know, how uh, women actually control the urge of a man. Uh, is, is the body of a woman is created uh, through the menstrual cycle. There's a time of the month where women are driven to want to have sex. That's what women tell me. And that's a natural, God-created part of being woman is women are driven 
at a certain time of the month to want to engage in sex. But what we have done is interpret that as women are Jezebels. If God creates the woman body to desire sex for the purpose of procreation or whatever it may be, we want to make that something ugly. So the question for me theologically is, um, and well, let's just come back to this. The, the struggle I had is I thought through this process around human sexuality in the Bible. There's not a case where women are given an interpretation. The voice of women is totally out of the text. All of the interpretation of women in their sexuality is driven by man. And man's interpretation is that woman is the problem. So when it comes to any kind of interpretation of Dex, huh? That goes back to ego again. It goes back to ego. So the question is who's interpreting the text? Right. And who is left out of the text? So what women as scholars do uh, is they interpret the text from the perspective of a woman, a black woman. What black liberation theology does, it interprets the text from the perspective of black people. Um, to me, that's like really critical. Um, I'm gaining power in the who interprets or reinterprets text that has been controlled uh, by people to marginalize. You got to take that out of the equation. So yeah, that ego does definitely come in um, in every world religion. Um, there is goodness. <laughs> In all world religion, there's a kernel of truth. Um, if you do like uh, Karen Anderson's book, The History of God, where uh, she does an examination of how religions evolve over his, throughout history, and what you discover is there's this common bonding of all world religion. Mm -hmm. Kernel of truth is just like there. It's like, wow, they all they have this stuff in common. It's the way we interpret it, it becomes problematic. Mm -hmm. And, and then the implementation of that interpretation. Interpretation of the interpretation. Because the implementation uh, and, often means domination, control. Domination, control. Know, I will tell you what to do. You must right. follow me. Right. Uh, all of those things, which are... Hierarchies. Right. Uh, see, my interpretation of Jesus is Jesus never wanted to create a church. Mm -hmm. It's Paul. So what we have in contemporary uh, setting uh, is is not uh, the institution that Jesus created. It's what Paul creates, mm -hmm. and uh, what Paul created was something very similar to what existed prior to Jesus coming, which is back to what it used to be. Um, now you know, you just read the text; it's pretty clear. That's what happens. Um, what we do with that is a different conversation. Mm -hmm. um, is, does that mean that you have to strip all of it out? No. But I do think it's incredible and very important that we rethink what it means for us to exist with those teachings. Yeah. It's, it's paradoxical to me, because even as we've been having this conversation, thinking about the concept of Jesus and the humility with which <clears throat> he went about doing what he did, and yet <laughs> the absence of ego and those who preach and talk about him and uphold him often are doing the opposite of what he was doing. Yes. When it comes down to ego exactly. and, and humility. That's, exactly. It, it's so clear to me that why don't all the, why don't people get that? But no, I'm going to be 
Reverend Dr. Pastor, so and so, you know, and, and be on top of all everybody. That's not what the person you were talking about did. Well, we all, we both know the reason, right? <laughs> said it yet? Economic advantage. Mm -hmm. You know, you can't, you cannot create a profitable institution if you follow the teachings of Jesus. It's not set up for profit. It's not a business model. No. You're talking about um, what really is a Marxist economic system. Shared economics. Um, Jesus is talking about shared economics. Jesus is talking about um, uh, leaderless institutional development. He's talking about leaderless, no leaders, not in traditional sense, not in the way we interpret it. Jesus didn't put anybody in position of power. Um, so it's not the kind of structure that we could benefit from economically. You know, um, what Paul creates is a system that can be taken advantage of economically. Um, and that, you know, and for me, uh, as a theologically trained minister, saying that, you know, it's like, what do you do with that? I mean, what create, how do you create movement in today's society that doesn't take into consideration some kind of economic model? How do you do that? And then people will say the church is a business. And yeah, it has definitely become a business. The question is what type of business? What is the business of the business? And, and so we, we really get into those kind of conversations. We, we get the motivation of that ego you talk about. You're a pastor who's made himself into a bishop or an apostle. That's a new one, right? Apostle, which means that you, you've been given new territory to consider. God has given you something totally new. Woohoo. But that is about some kind of economic created movement, right? Mm -hmm. How do you do this church work when you don't do that at all? That's been my journey. My journey is how can you effectively do the work of spiritual recreation? I mean, spiritual recreate. We have to recreate what it means to be spiritual without it becoming an economic system. That's a good question. You can maintain some, some credibility and what your mission really is. Well, your mission is finding people who are broken spiritually by owning an identity that is not theirs, right? Well, you can say to children, they say you can't learn. Yes, you can. A women, you say, they say that your job is to take care of everybody and not care about yourself and do what your husband says, uh, give him sex whenever he wants it, and it doesn't matter if you like it or not, blah, blah, blah. And you come into those spaces and you say, that's not what freedom is. And you do all that work, and you're not worried about the economics. How do you do that work? To me, that's the challenge of the new church. How do you survive as a professional 
who's done the heavy lifting of learning, who's wanting to be credible as a professional who is free, free to say what it needs to be said in a society that has no voices that are free. If the pastor can't say, you white folk crazy, who gonna say it? Right. Mm. So this is like, we're in an era where more people are like, this, this is a new, we have these iterations of movements that have been happening, right? The mm -hmm. movement, the um, now this is racial um, rec recognition movement, if right. you will. So you have all these companies that are recognizing that they have to come out and say something. Right. But they're saying something that rings hollow because what they are doing in their actions are quite counter to what they're saying. Right. So it's an opportunity really to, because of the energy of the time, to call people on certain things and to speak truth out. If you are capable of doing that and not worry about what the brushback is going to be. Right. Because it's not quote unquote polite. Even though we're in a we're in an age where people aren't being polite anyway from the right. very top. <laughs> right? That, that that example that's being said there is just like no nobody should ever be raising any questions about civil discourse right in, in certain camps. But we have an opportunity to stand up and say this is what it is. And right. You know it's what it is, and I know it what it is. Why are we pretending that we can't we say what it is? Like we do that a lot. Oh, so people will like I'm watching all of these racist senators come and try to do these tributes for people that they had horrible things to say when when they were alive. It's like I don't your words are meaningless. <laughs> they yes. really are meaningless. Because you did not like this guy. As a matter of fact, you said some very nasty right. things. So for you to come and try to smooth it over and say all these glowing things, it rings hollow. And we right. ought to have fortitude enough to say, I don't need your words. Stop right. talking to me because it's fake, it's phony. Like, you know, the brother, I can't remember his name, but. Um, uh, one of the politicians passed away, and the uh, I think it was Mitch McConnell went to shake his hand. He was like, "No, you're not shaking my hand." Right. I, you, after all the stuff you said about my loved one, I'm not shaking your hand. Right. And we need to do more of that. Like I'm not going to just turn the other cheek, so to speak. Right. <laughs> when you um, have been beating me down. Right. Right. That that doesn't make sense. One one of the things um, that I've been trying to make clear to these white congregations I've been talking to, I've been doing a lot of talking to white folks. <laughs> and one thing I want to say is, I can no longer be invested in white people's guilt. Mm -hmm. um, what I see happening now is white people coming to grips with what they couldn't see. 
they're having dialogue well, about well, well, what they chose not to see. Not what they chose not to see. And they're having conversations about anti-racism, white supremacy. You know, they got a whole little vocabulary around these conversations. And what I want to say to them, that's your conversation among yourself to try to um, resolve your guilt. I'm not invested in that. Mm -mm. Um, because that doesn't have anything really to do with me. You know, you're marching in the streets and crying Black Lives Matter. That's all fine and well. I go do that. But understand, none of that really gets at what we need you to do. Mm -hmm. And what that means to me, give me my reparations. Mm -hmm. Just give me my money. Mm -hmm. Right? That's all I want to hear. I don't hear anything about, we saw it, we didn't see it, you know? I didn't know that flag was hurting your feelings. I don't care what your, what your Jesus has shown you. I don't care if God knocked you behind off a horse and there was a glowing light and, and the Lord said, why are you persecuting my Negroes? I don't care. Show me my money. Because until you do that, it's hollow. We have this amazing disparity economically because of what your people did to my people. And if you ain't going to fix that, I don't want to sit next to you in no church and hold your hands and sing Kumbaya. Right. Don't talk me to death. Huh? <laughs> don't, you know, they, tonight they were having these conversations about how can we learn from the black church so that we can be more like you? I, you know, I'm like, you can't, you, you know, you don't have the experience of being broken on a weekly basis and coming together for the purpose of trying to figure out how I'm going to go back to that white person's job, that person with that white man next week. And you coming on, you going to church at Lord, kill him. You know, basically, Lord, you better get that white man out of that job before I kill him. You don't have that as a, an experience. So, you know, there is no way that you can feel the, the, the force of Black people coming together, communing together, regardless of what faith claim it may be. I mean, just Black people gathering together, be it at the beauty part, beauty salon, be it at the, at the barbershop, you know, be it at the grocery store, you know, wherever, wherever be it the family reunion. You cannot experience that. So don't have that conversation with me. Go into your damn bank account. Pull out half of your damn 401k. Give me that 401k. You want to make it better for me? Show me the money. Make my life better economically. Mm -hmm. Recognize that your fortune in life is a consequence of what you had access to do that I did not have access to. That's all I want to hear right now. I think the other part of that is getting rid of the systemic racism and racist practices that still are in existence to this day. Yeah. Um, make the salaries equal. Like All stop, of that. Stop um, devaluing the homes in the black community uh, and lifting up the values in the white community. Yeah. You know, stop redlining. Stop, on and on. Stop um, 
discriminating when it comes to loans and opportunities for resources. Stop underfunding the, the schools in the black community and sending all the money to the schools in the, in the white all community. That. Like all that. All of those things and more. <laughs> Some of those things, though, if we had reparations, we wouldn't have to look to them to do anything for us to make it right in a, in a lot of areas. Like, I think some of why we are looking for them to make it right is because we don't have the resources in our community. You think about the New Deal. Franklin Delano Roosevelt came up with the New Deal. Social Security, right? Uh, uh, HUD, you know, housing loans, all that. Benefits for veterans. Black folk didn't have access to that. And the descendants of the white people that. that did have access. We're we talking about uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, great president, created the New Deal, but because of the Southern, the Southern Democrats who didn't want to support it, he made it so that black people couldn't take advantage of it. They couldn't get none of that. Not to mention the people that came back after fighting in the dang wars, that came back and couldn't get a VA loan. Hmm. The, the, the kind of conversation about how that impacts generation upon generation upon generation of black people. You got to show me the damn money. Fix what could have been my life mm -hmm. when it comes to property. You know, fix it. If you can't have that conversation, if you can't get riled, you, you know, all your white folk out here rallying and whatnot, if y'all can't come together and say, we want you, Mr. Senator, Mr. Congressman, pass that bill around reparations so that every black person in this country get a minimum of a $250,000 check. I, ain't ha I can't, I, you know, I don't, I don't want to hear nothing else. I'm tired of singing the songs. I don't need no more those civil rights laws. Because all you're going to do is change them anyway. Mm -hmm. Okay? I don't need no more of that. I, I, I do need you to give me fair pay. I do need you to have an opportunity for housing. All that stuff you said, all the, uh, the equity pieces, I want all of that on the table. But we can't have no conversation until you fix it for my, me and what my family did not get because of the color of my damn skin. I'm with you on that. And y'all having these conversations, y'all do that. Y'all deal with y'all white guilt. But I still got my black pain. Right. And your guilt don't help that. Mm -hmm. Now for me, that is a spiritual conversation. That is not a legal conversation. That is not a judicial, I mean, all that to me is the very, the very core of what it means to to, 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 to be a person who wants people to be free. How are you going to be free if you can't pay your bills? Okay. So coming out of this, um, come, well, being in this time, wrap all that up as we're... As we're wrap it up, shoot. We're coming up on our time here. Um, yeah. I want, to, I want to tie this into what's going on in the country right now um, with, well, on, on, on a couple of fronts, because I think it's a dismantling. I've been talking about it as a, as a necessary dismantling of, of structures that were not, um, that were a lie to begin with, that were in right. they need to come down. 
So this process is necessary, although uncomfortable and painful. Right. Um, so with the COVID, with the, uh, mm. the George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and many, many others right. uh, that are, that are that, you know, the, these things have been become the touching point that this uh, proverbial straw that broke the camel's back that have unleashed folks standing up and saying, okay, okay, now enough is really enough. What do you see spiritually? Um, what's your take on what's happening spiritually and, and what you think is going to manifest moving forward? Hmm. Um, the biblical imagery I like to use with all of this is um, Moses standing before Pharaoh saying, let my people go. Mm -hmm. And, um, and Pharaoh would say, I ain't gonna let him go. You know, he changed his mind. And there are these plagues. So the, the, the kind of like biblical imagery I like to use in reference to America right now is that what we experience is a Moses moment where um, God is crying out, uh, let my people go. And uh, the people haven't been let go for 400 years. And uh, what I feel that's happening in America right now is we have these plagues that happen simultaneous. Uh, I'm, I'm, and and, and, and I'm, I'm not theologically, I don't believe that God intends for the bad things to happen. Uh, my point is the bad things are being used to make a, a statement about the state of America. Um, they, we, we have the, the police brutality. We, we have the, uh, the, the, the systems of racism is showing up all over the place. You have all this dismantling of ideas around what race looks like. Uh, on top of that, we have COVID. And uh, on top of that, we have uh, unemployment. We have problems with the economy because people can't work. Right? Uh, and on top of that, we have problems with uh, people uh, are being uh, psychologically damaged because they're not able to do the things they normally would do. You know, you can't go on a vacation. <laughs> you know, you can't, you can't gather and hug people. You know, uh, intimacy is taking a dent. So all of this stuff is happening like a perfect storm that really says that we need to take a very serious look at how we have damaged black people for a long time. And I really think what's happening now is Americans getting a sense of what it feels like to be black. Yes. Mm -hmm. that's, what, that's what, for me, what all of this is saying. Y'all want to know what it's like to be a Negro. Here you go. Fix it. Mm -hmm. You can't work. How's that feel for you? Right? Can't go where you want to go. How's that feel for you? You can't go where you want to. Can't stay where you want to stay. So to me, that's kind of this, this I think the, the spiritual lesson in all this. And the judgment day is coming around with the election. The election is going to be the dang judgment day. And if I'm telling you, if this boy gets back in that damn office, be a crazy damn thing up in here. Huh? Huh? I'm going to be singing the song, my theme song. I'm about to lose my mind up in here, up in here. It's going to be over. Y'all hear me? I'm with you. Y'all yeah. better come get me. Huh? Y'all better get some, y'all better get all of the African priestesses together. Y'all better get everybody, Buddha, Jesus, Muhammad, all of them better come and get with me because it's going to be chaotic in the country if he gets back in office. Because we 
all of this is taking place for America to say, eh, we don't care. What's that gonna look like? Yeah. Yes, indeed. It's a reckoning. It is a reckoning. a reckoning. Okay. Well, we certainly appreciate the conversation and dialogue. This is definitely uh, opening up some things that I think a lot of people are talking about and thinking about. And more than anything, continuing to raise questions, um, not necessarily come to solutions. Those are, those are cool, but continuing to ask more and more questions because they're it's like the ocean is so vast and unexplored. And these conversations and topics, topical spirit is, is vast and needs to con continue to be um, talked about and, and discussed and studied in a, in a very reasoned and wise way. So uh, we thank you for continuing the dialogue with us. And well, I thank, I thank the two of you for your prophetic voice. <laughs> and recognize that this is prophetic utterance that you're doing with this show. And I thank you for that. Thank you. It is a, a labor of love. We, we enjoy this process. And, and so many people are being impacted and touched by it. So, you know, we'll keep doing as long as people keep listening. So. Okay. All right, so we thank you all for listening, for joining us, and as always, continue to think critically and move yourselves forward as it relates to spirit and staying tapped in spirit. And we want to thank you again for joining us uh, this evening, being a guest on our show again, and we will certainly be talking with you moving forward. All right, God bless. Peace. 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 talking about spirit. So in closing, we'd like to encourage you to embrace the concept of change and learning something new. Continue to evolve, continue to transform, continue to thrive and find your own personal path to tapping into spirit. And I was obviously too blind and probably too weak to see who was responsible for my losing streak.